All right, we'll turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. The book of Genesis in chapter 28. So we pick up where we left off this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 10. We're going to read verses 10 through 22. Verses 10 through 22. See what happens here in the life of Jacob. Beginning in verse 10, we read, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, well, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So this passage is very meaty, very dense with significance. There's a lot here for us to learn. This moment, it wasn't just a pivotal moment in Jacob's life. I think we would be pressed to say that this was the pivotal moment in Jacob's life. Think about who he is. Think about the situation that he is in. He is the child of believing parents. He knows of the true God, but his life so far has been one of wickedness. To this point, Jacob has lived for self and only for self. He has taken advantage of his brother, conspired sinfully with his mother, dishonored and deceived his father. 
He has received the birthright. He has received the blessing. But at this moment, those things mean little. He's on the run for his life. His brother wants to kill him. He is off to his uncle Laban's where he hopes to find a wife to start living a new life. This is a precarious moment. A very precarious moment in Jacob's life. He's on his home now. He's left his home. Certain pressures and influences that bore down on him back at home are no longer with him. Will he now follow his parents' God? Will he continue to live in the wickedness in which he has been living? Will he follow through with his commitment to go to Laban to find a wife as he promised his mom and dad? Or will he get sidetracked? The future is before him. The choices he now makes are crucial. Though Jacob was probably quite a bit older than your typical college student, uh, some scholars think he may have been as old as 50 or 60 years old at this point, there are still some similarities to that kind of situation. When Christian parents send their child to college or their child moves out of the house and begins to live life on their own, there are concerns in the hearts of the parents. Now what kind of people will my child choose to be around? Will my child get involved with wicked people? Will my child do wicked things? Too many children have left their Christian homes only to have, been heart, to have had their hearts hardened by various factors so that they never return to the faith of their parents. And so the question as Jacob leaves home, running for his life, headed towards Laban, the question is this, what's now going to happen with him? What kind of man is he going to prove to be? And therefore, it's extremely important to see the timing of God. It is in this moment that God chooses to break into Jacob's life in a unique way. Jacob is a wretched sinner who deserves to be left to himself until the day he is cast into hell. And yet God chooses to make himself known to Jacob in a loving, merciful, powerful, personal way. From this point forward, Jacob will not be the same man. Now, he still has his issues, but he will not be the same man. What's the main doctrine of this passage? What is the main truth being taught? Allow me to word it this way. Trust God, for there is more going on in this world than what your eyes can see. Trust God, for there is more going on in this world than what your eyes can see. You see, to this point, Jacob has been something of an in-charge kind of guy. When he wanted something, he found a way to get it. In his own mind, he's, he's been in control of his life. And all of a sudden, God shows him that there's more going on than he has realized. There's another hand that has been at work and is working in his life. That hand is the hand of God. Look with me again at verses 10 through the beginning of verse 13. Beginning of verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. 
Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head. He lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, stood above it. Here is Jacob lying on the ground with a stone for his pillow. And he has a dream like no other. He sees what our passage calls a ladder connecting heaven and earth. The word used here is not actually used anywhere else in the Bible. So we're a little bit uncertain about exactly what it is that Jacob sees the angels ascending and descending on. Jacob could be seeing a straight up and down ladder like you think of when we hear the word ladder. Most scholars think that what he's actually seeing is something more like a flight of steps. And so here is a stairway to heaven. Ascending and descending these steps are angels of God. And it's as if Jacob is being allowed to see something that is normally hidden, normally invisible, namely... The reality that God has angels who are constantly about in this world accomplishing God's will. The Lord is at the top of these steps. The angels are going from Him and returning to Him and they are accomplishing His work on the earth. Jacob, you've been living in a very narrow-minded kind of way. You've been living for yourself. You've been concerned with self. You've been seeking to get things you want, even if it means being wicked to get them. You have failed to see there is so much more going on in this world. God is at work. Angels are at work. There are invisible, spiritual, large things happening, huge things being accomplished around you. Wake up, Jacob. Wake up to the reality that there is more happening than just what you see with your eyes. This is something that you and I, especially in our culture, need to be regularly reminded of. At no point in the history of the world has has narrow-minded thinking been more prevalent than today. For thousands of years... People believed in the supernatural, understood that there were things happening around them that were beyond what they could see, beyond what they could understand. But since the time of the Enlightenment, Western nations like ours have embraced a much smaller worldview that says if something cannot be seen, if something cannot be explained scientifically, it must not be true. Everything is subject to the human mind. The world we live in is a mechanical world operating on natural laws. There is no such thing as the supernatural. There is no such thing as the miraculous or the invisible hand of God working. There's no such thing as angels. This is very ridiculous of us if we think this way. It shows how wicked our own hearts can be because If we were to see things objectively, we would think very differently. If modern science has taught us anything, it ought to be that 
that what we can see with our eyes and explain with our minds is more limited than we ever thought. There is a whole microscopic world that we in our day are still discovering that people in Jacob's day knew nothing about. There is a whole macroscopic world, the cosmos, the universe, which is vaster, far vaster than Jacob could have ever imagined or dreamed. People in Jacob's day didn't know that the earth is hurling through space at 67,000 miles per hour. Do you feel like you're hurling through space at 67,000 miles per hour right now? We don't feel that. And gravity keeps us to the earth so that we can't feel it. But we know it's happening. Jacob did know that if you put a seed in dirt and add water to it, it can turn into a tree. We know that plants can take sunlight and take a a gas out of the air, carbon dioxide, and turn it into sugar. And then you eat an apple and the sugar in the apple that was once a gas is now sugar in your mouth. We know there's a dead rock called the moon in orbit around the earth and that that rock controls the tides of our oceans, which in turn affects the balance of life on the entire planet. We know that one cell in your brain can send an electronic signal to another cell in your brain and you experience that as a thought reminding you where you set your car keys. Scientists can tell us that these things happen. And scientists give these things name. But are they any less miraculous? Should they not amaze us? Should we not see the hand of God in them? Should not the modern discoveries of science tell us there is more going on in this world than we know or realize? We're very foolish if we think otherwise. We give something a name. We learn a little bit about how it works. And we assume that by giving it a name and learning a little bit about it, we've shown that God must have nothing to do with it. In reality, we've been granted to see more than any generation before us the very wonders of how God's hand often works. And the more we discover, the more mysteries we uncover. The more we learn, the more we ought to see how much we really don't understand. Science ought to point us to belief in the supernatural, not away from it. We live in a supernatural world, a world in which if God would cause our eyes to see, we would see angels about. Jacob did not live in a post-enlightenment world like you and I do. People in Jacob's day knew that there was a lot they could not explain. Belief in the supernatural was all pervasive in his day. But in this dream, God reveals to him that he, the God of his fathers, is the true God. And that he is working and has been at work in ways that Jacob previously did not understand or realize. What are angels? Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are spirits sent out by God to do His work and the work they do is ultimately for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. 
God is working all things for the good of His people, and angels are servants of God that He often uses in accomplishing those things. And so I would ask us to consider the way we normally think each day. To consider our own worldview. Is this the way you see our world? Do you see the world as a place where angels are at work? Do you see this world that we live in as a, as a magical, supernatural place? Or is it all mechanical in your mind? Do you see the hand of God working around you each and every day? Or has men like Voltaire and Rousseau affected you more than you may have realized? If you see this world as a mechanical place in which everything just kind of works, You'll begin to think you're getting it figured out and you'll begin to trust in yourself more and more and pride will take root in your soul. But if you realize that you are living in a world that you do not fully understand, where there are invisible forces at play around you, that this is a a wild and crazy world, not wild in God's hands, it's all orderly from His perspective, but from our perspective, it is a wild world that we live in. If we get that and we understand that, we will be quick to fear God. We will be quick to turn to God in faith and rest in Him and not our own understanding. That's what's happening to Jacob here. His eyes are being opened to a spiritual reality. The hand of God is at work. There are angels working. Think about what's been happening in Jacob's life. Think about just the last few days. His life has experienced great turmoil. His relationships with his own family members have just experienced great change. And now here is God revealing to him that even in the midst of all this, God has been working. What's the point? Jacob, there is more going on in this world than you can see with your eyes. Trust God. Now notice what God says to Jacob. First, he makes clear who he is. He is the God of his fathers. He is not one of the gods of the pagans. This is not the Assyrian God or the Babylonian God. It didn't really exist at this time, but he's not the Hittite God, right? Speaking to them. He says, I am the Lord, fully capitalized. This is the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. God is making absolutely clear to Jacob who he is that is working. Here is the God that sends angels to earth to do his will. This is the true God, the God of Abraham. Then God says, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And as soon as we hear the land on which you lie, I will give to you, we know where this is going, don't we? We know these promises. We've we've seen these promises again and again and again. Now it's Jacob's turn to hear these words from God himself. The promises that were given to Abraham, which were passed to Isaac. We saw this morning Isaac was blessing Jacob and praying, may God give you the blessings that he gave to Abraham. And now God is doing that. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. The picture is of Jacob becoming a vast nation. Many citizens in this kingdom, much land. And we know where it's all pointing, because we saw it this morning. It's pointing to the 
kingdom of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom without end. God says, And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Here it is. The Abrahamic promises given to Jacob. So how does Jacob respond to this vision? Well, first, when Jacob awakes, he immediately makes a big deal about this place where he's been sleeping. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I just, I just was here, and it, the sun was going down, and I needed a place to sleep, and I just grabbed a stone, and I slept here. I had no idea this place was, was the very house of God, the gates of heaven. Now, God has just told Jacob that he's going to be with him wherever he goes. Right? God dwells on all the earth. But because Jacob has seen this stairway and the angels entering heaven and leaving heaven at this spot, he immediately seems to think that this particular location has special significance. And so he takes the stone on which he slept and he sets it up as a pillar to mark the place. He pours oil upon the stone to consecrate it. Oil in the Bible is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Oil was used to set something apart for holy use. In reality, it's the Holy Spirit who actually sets people apart for holy use. Just as the oil was poured out on this stone to make it holy, to consecrate it, so God pours out His Spirit on His people to make them holy, to set them apart. After consecrating the stone, Jacob gives this place a name. Bethel, the house of God. Beth means house, right? Bethlehem, house of bread, right? Here is Bethel. El means God. It's the house of God. Bethel will remain an important place in the Old Testament. Later, wicked King Jeroboam will establish the cultic worship of golden calves at this spot. It will be seen as a picture of just how wicked Israel has become, that it is here, at this place of such spiritual significance in the history of Israel, it is here that Jeroboam sets up the worship of these idols. Ultimately, however, this place, Bethel, is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jacob saw Bethel as a place where where heaven and earth meet. Here was a place where where people could commune with God, a place where, where God and man could connect. In reality, there was nothing special about the place itself. That place was meant to point to Jesus Christ, the true Bethel, the true one in whom God and man come together. Turn to John 1 with me real quick. John 1. Let me just show you something here. Let's begin reading in verse 43. Verse 43. 
The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? In other words, what's happened here is apparently Nathanael and Jesus have never met. Yet Jesus sees Nathanael coming from afar and declares, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Which gives Nathanael thinking, How does he know who I am? Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, Jesus wasn't around the fig tree. How how did Jesus see him? It, It was a miracle. Jesus is saying that in a miraculous way, in his mind, he had seen Nathanael under the fig tree when Philip approached him. Nathanael's amazed. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Look at Jesus' answer. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What's he referring to? He's referring to Bethel. He's referring to that place at which Jacob saw heaven and earth meet. A place where God and man could commune together. The house of God. The place where angels ascend and descend. And Jesus says, I am Bethel. I am the one on whom the angels ascend and descend. And Jesus Christ, heaven and earth meet. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. So having consecrated the stone and named the place Bethel, Jacob now makes a vow to God. This was not a sin for him to do. And it's not a sin for us to make a solemn vow before God. Don't misunderstand Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about not taking an oath at all. The issue that Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount is that wicked practice that was prevalent in His day of people taking oaths as a part of normal conversations. People would begun swearing by the temple, by Jerusalem, by the very name of God Himself as a regular part of their conversations, often using God's name to swear to things that they had no intention of keeping. Backing up their lies with sacred things. People were being very careless with their words, invoking God and heaven. And Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount was that that kind of taking oath should not happen at all. But a serious, thoughtful, careful vow to God is always seen in the Scriptures as a positive thing. Jesus Himself takes oaths when He is on trial at the end of His life. And we read of him doing it again in the book of Revelation. 
Three times in Paul's letters, Paul makes a vow or takes an oath, swearing in God's name. When a Christian is baptized, more or less, that's what a Christian is doing. Publicly vowing before God and before others and before his own conscience, I am going to follow Jesus Christ. When a man is appointed to a spiritual office, be it that of elder, pastor, or deacon, he's taking a vow, an oath to serve God in proper biblical ways. Thoughtful, serious vows are a part of the Christian life. And Jacob's action here is to be viewed in a positive way. This wicked deceiver is now declaring his intention to take the true God as his God. Listen to the vow that Jacob makes. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, well, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. What are we to make of all these conditions? If God does this, if God does that, then He will be my God. Well, notice that Jacob is only saying he will take God as his God if God does the very things that God has just said He's going to do. In other words, Jacob isn't coming to God and saying, I have this condition, this condition, this condition, and if you do it, I will follow you. No, he's saying, God, you've just told me all of these things that you promised to me. Now, as you prove yourself faithful, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to follow you. He's testing God in the best sort of way. These are the kinds of prayers that actually you and I should be praying every day. It's the kind of prayers we see often in the Psalms. It's praying in which you pray the promises of God back to Him. God, prove yourself faithful. I declare my intention to trust you and to follow you. Now prove yourself faithful. We could even make Jacob's vow our own vow. For has God not promised us that He will keep us wherever we go and be with us? Has God not promised to give His people bread to eat and clothing to wear? Has God not promised that He will ultimately bring us back to our true home in peace? In a lot of ways, baptism works for us in this way, that there's sort of, was sort of how Jacob was anointing this ceremonial stone, and it was this pivotal moment in his life. It was his line in the sand kind of moment. That's what baptism is for us. We don't suddenly understand everything. We still have so far to go. But baptism is that moment that we cross the line. We step out in faith publicly. It's that crucial moment when we say, henceforth I will not live for myself, but for Christ who loves me and died for me. It is a strange thing that there are so many people today who call themselves Christians, but who have never had this pivotal moment, this moment of baptism. Here is the moment of the line in the sand. Christ has called all His people to begin their Christian lives with this ordinance. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you must be baptized. This is the beginning of the Christian life. Inwardly, your Christian life began the moment you were born again. But outwardly, publicly, your Christian life begins when you have that pivotal moment. You go across the line in the sand. You are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
I have died to myself. I am now living for Christ and to Christ. Note also that Jacob's newfound faith is going to result in another kind of action. Not only this anointing the stone and naming the place and making this vow, but he promises that he's going to give 10% of all that he receives back to God. This tithing principle that Jacob mentions has been established even before his own day. We saw this tithing principle when we saw Jacob, when we saw Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people are marked by their giving of tithes to God. This was a way of expressing their dependence upon God, honoring God as first in their lives, helping to wean their own hearts away from the love of money and possessions, and their way of supporting the work of God. Giving less than a tithe to God was considered robbing God by the prophet Malachi. It was a mark of wickedness. These Old Testament practices are are shadows that give way to more glorious things in the New Testament. And thus, we don't stick with the shadow and say today, well, Christians should just give 10%. Rather, the principle to which the tithe always pointed was that of giving our whole selves to God. That everything we are and everything we own ought to fit into our service to God in some way. Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or spend money here or spend money there, it ought to be for the glory of God. The New Testament particularly emphasizes giving of our material blessings to two causes. Supporting those who bring spiritual blessings and caring for the needs of the saints. And Christians are to give sacrificially. They're to give joyfully as a response to God's graciousness to them. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. This is probably the, uh, I would say, the most foundational or central point about giving in the New Testament. Paul says this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. But each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Jesus didn't point to the tithes of the Pharisees as our model. He pointed to the widow's might as our model. What made the widow's might so acceptable to God was not its monetary value. It was of very little value, but it was the fact that this widow was giving sacrificially and from the heart. She was depending upon God to take care of her. And so how are we doing here? God who has broken into our lives, who has brought us to those pivotal moments of declaring our faith in Jesus and following Him, God is proving Himself faithful to us. We need to recognize that money and possessions can be very dangerous to our souls. And if we're not giving as we ought to God, it usually means that we're in grave danger of being pulled into worldliness. A failure to give usually means that we are not trusting God to take care of us or that we've allowed stuff to matter more to us than obedience to God. And so if there's any of that in us, we need to repent of it. We need to change. We need to do what's right. 
here Jacob commits to give to the Lord of all that he receives, a tithe. He's not just saying, I I think I'm going to follow you. I I may follow you, God. No, he's saying, I now see. I am going to follow you. And as you bless me of all I receive, I'm going to give to you. Now, we all know that because Jacob has this moment and comes to faith in the true God, everything's going to be easy from this point forward. There's going to be no more problems in Jacob's life. We could describe the rest of Jacob's life as a bed of roses. You think? No, certainly not. The next 20 years are going to be very hard for Jacob. This deceiver is now going to be the one who gets deceived by his uncle. Jacob is going to be taken advantage of. Jacob is going to be mistreated. All sorts of troubles await him down the road from Bethel. Walking with God is not going to mean less hardship for him. Indeed, walking with God typically means more hardship. But it also means having God with us. It also means um, that God will be with us as we walk the path. And having God with us is worth more than any path we could walk down, however easy it is. If turning to God in faith meant immediate ease in this life, well, everyone would turn to God. But God would just then become a tool that people were using to obtain an easier life here today. Right and wrong would not matter to us. Virtue wouldn't matter. Character wouldn't matter. God is going to bring His people to a day and to a place where sorrow and pain really are going to end. But even in heaven, our happiness will be based less on the ease of our lives and more on the holiness of God being reflected in His Son and in us. Holiness is the goal of our salvation. Holiness is what leads to true and abounding happiness. And thus, when a person believes on Jesus Christ, he or she should expect hardship because it is through hardship that God makes us holy. Following Jesus is not the path to immediate ease. It's the path to holiness through hardship. He who would follow me, let him take up his cross. Let me close by emphasizing one more point. People come to trust God when their spiritual eyes are given a glimpse of His glory. People come to trust God when their spiritual eyes are given a glimpse of His glory. Think about this. Jacob was not a man whom we would have thought was heading towards faith in God. Like so many other people that we know and care about and love, Jacob, to this point, had been self-obsessed. He'd shown absolutely no concern for God or the things of God. He was a a wretched sinner, and yet suddenly, out of nowhere, this dream takes place, and we find Jacob committing himself to the true God. How, How did this radical change come about? Well, though Jacob's physical eyes were closed and he was asleep, the eyes of his heart and mind, he was given a glimpse of the very awesomeness of God. Jacob began to see for the first time something of who the real God is. He saw that He is a God who is working all around him and through him. 
A God who was maybe larger than he had imagined before, greater and grander than he had thought previously. A God who's not just out there somewhere, he's here. He saw that God is the Lord of hosts. Namely, that there is a whole host of angels that God commands and whom obey Him and do His will. After seeing this God, how could He not turn to Him? How foolish He would be not to trust this God. This is not a God to be belittled or ignored. Here is an almighty personal force to be reckoned with. Jacob beheld something of the glory of God and it brought him to faith. And that's how it happens in our day too. When we're praying for those around us who are lost, we should be praying that their hearts would be made to see something of the glory of God. When we are witnessing to people and we long to see them believe on Jesus and be saved, we should speak to them much about the glories of God. When we ourselves are hurting for more faith, here is the factory which will produce more faith in our hearts, namely, seeing more of the glories of God. This, dear friends, is why Jesus Christ ought to be at the center of our thoughts and conversations. For where else is the glory of God displayed more perfectly than in Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 4 says that this is how we are all saved. God speaks in our hearts and turns on the lights. And when the lights turn on in our souls, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, exalted, we see the power and the might of God. In Jesus, we see gentleness and humility. In Jesus, we see the righteousness of God and the justice of God and the wrath of God. And in Jesus, we see the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. In Jesus, we see God's wisdom and great understanding. In Jesus, we see the beauty of God and the purity of God and the peace of God. Everything that is good about God, which is everything, All that makes God glorious is seen in Jesus Christ. The glories of Christ are fuel for faith. Why? Because in Christ we see the glory of God. And it is the glory of God that creates faith in our hearts. Only the Spirit can cause people to see the glories of God and believe. Only the Spirit can make the lights turn on. And so we must be a people of prayer. We must be a people praying for that to happen. And typically, God, the Holy Spirit, makes that happen in connection with truth being proclaimed. And so we're to pray and we're to proclaim. We're to pray and we're to proclaim. In this case, God steps into Jacob's life. He sees in his dream the very truths of God and the Spirit works to save his soul. Let us be a people pleading for ourselves and others that they will see Jesus as the great mediator between God and man, the one in whom heaven and earth meet. Let's pray.